I'm Theo. And I'm Juliet. And this is Apologies Accepted. We offer an entertaining look at some of the big issues in history by examining public apologies of the famous and infamous. We're looking at politicians, serial killers, actors, and you. Send us a public apology you would like to make, and we'll read it on the air and give you a chance to redeem yourself or just get some guilt off your shoulders. We're here for you. Once a week, maybe more if you're really, really sorry. not Juliet. And I'm not Theo. And, and this, this is, is Apologies, Apologies Accepted. Accepted, the podcast. Hey, Theo, how are you? Hey, Juliet, I am, I'm actually so good, you know. Um, you are? I am. I don't want to mention the T word a lot, but with Trump being out word? of office. Testosterone? Oh. <laughs> no, no. Unfortunately, yeah, not testosterone. Um I'm trying to write a joke there now about Trump and testosterone. There's got to <laughs> oh, be don't, one real don't, quick. Please don't even go there. We don't yeah. want to think about that. Um, no. <laughs> but no, it's great. I didn't realize just how much of my time that guy was yeah. sucking up. And I now oh, don't an emotional check energy. the new, Exactly. The emotional yeah. energy, the the anxiety, the, the time just doom scrolling. I love that word. I'm going to use it. Um, it's been... Not only emotionally relieving, but I've yeah. got so much time now. Really? It, it's crazy. And, and nothing in my world has shifted that would suddenly give me all this time other than I'm not checking the news every five minutes or stopping to scream silently in the middle of an aisle in the grocery store. Yeah. You know. It's so nice to have Biden in charge now. It's just it's, it's so nice. He's like a reasonable, sane human being. And even though I wish he would do some things differently, it's just so much better. It's so much He's better. He's done pretty well for his first week or whatever. I mean, I can't really complain yet. I could complain. I could make something <laughs> up. Um, I've seen a couple of complaints where people are like... I mean, he like, should be doing the $2,000 instead of the $1,400. I mean, whoever advised him to do that was so stupid because he's built up so much bad will just on that one thing. Like, he said it was going to be $2,000. He should have given them $2,000. That's just... That's that's the end of it. How much money can he possibly be saving? I mean, really, versus the, the bad will he's building up over not giving the full $2,000. He's... he's the fool but anyway go ahead oh yeah no i've got i've got nothing uh on that at all um because for me it's like uh wow the the um republic is not under attack i always feel like that's step one to living in a country like oh there's gonna be a country great you know right um and then everything else i just i don't want to be all optimistic here but i'm gonna be They'll figure it all out and all be fine. That's right. <laughs> there you go. You don't need to worry anymore. I it's do just going to be okay. Need to worry at all, and I'm not going to. So, uh, so the short answer is I've been great. Um, Excellent. And you're getting a puppy. A puppy. We are getting a puppy at the end in four more weeks. Oh my! Four more weeks. Oh my God! It's going to be so cute. It is so cute. You've named him Henry. Uh, the puppy's name is Henry, and uh, he is a golden doodle. I always want to say labradoodle, but the those are two different doodle. things. Yeah. yeah. So he's a he is a golden doodle so crossbred back with a poodle. So he's an FB two. Some I don't know. Uh, right, right, right. Yeah, because I don't want to know. 
Uh, I'm from yeah, a family our dogs come from the pound. <laughs> how, how, can I ask how much this dog cost you? We could take this out if you want, but. Oh, uh, yeah, no, uh, I don't know. Oh, okay. I don't know. I was talking to someone the other day. Um, actually, I was telling someone the other day that you had gotten a, or, or getting a golden doodle. And somebody said that they had had a friend who spent $10,000 for their golden doodle. Oh, Jesus And I was Christ, like, no. I've never heard of, of $10,000 for a golden doodle. I was thinking more like $2,000. I, um, I think at the most it'd be $2,000 because yeah. there's on no planet, on no planet. Not for a golden doodle. I'm sorry. 10, I love dogs, but they die. They die pretty quick, too. They I run mean, away. They get hit long. by cars. All kinds oh, of bad things so can sad. happen. So I'd yeah. rather take $10,001 bills and just hand them out on the street. <laughs> You'd probably feel better about it, and you wouldn't have to deal with poop. So, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> poop from excited people getting a free dollar. <laughs> Oh, no, I have to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we might take that part out. We'll see. We'll see. Um, Okay, yeah, and so how about you? Um, God, I don't know. Um, I think I'm fine. I'm in the process of of transitioning from being a contractor consultant at my job to being full-time. They're um, trying to set up interviews for me and all that kind of thing. And it's kind of yay and it's kind of not because even though I'll be getting the same the same salary, it'll be a combination of the same money. It'll be a combination of salary plus bonus plus stock that'll add up to what I'm getting now as a consultant, which is good, but I have to wait until like February for like a lot of that money. So I don't get it every paycheck like I do now, which is kind of a drawback or maybe not. I mean, because maybe I'll be able to save money now, but as opposed to spending $180 on a pair of fucking pajamas just because I like them. Um, yeah, so... Pluses and minuses. Um, everything else is good. It was re- really rainy here in San Francisco uh, for about a week, which was good because we need the weather. Um, now we're at like 45% of our annual rain, which is better than it was. Um, and it's sunny today. So uh, I'm thinking I'm thinking I'd like to go to the botanical garden, but there's no way in hell I'm going anywhere except to go to the pharmacy and pick up my prescription. So that's my day. That's all right. That is a That is a nice day. It's not bad. If I go to the pharmacy and pick up my prescription, maybe I'll stop at Starbucks, which would be a super big treat for me. I have a N- I have N95s now, and I wear them um, when I go somewhere like the pharmacy. I wear them with a, a cloth mask over top of them, so um, just to be safe. So I think I could probably go to Starbucks if I because you just pick it up outside. So I think it's probably safe enough to go to Starbucks. So you go to the grocery stores and stuff, right? I go to grocery stores. Um... And then if it's got a drive-through, I go to uh, yeah. Starbucks. Um, yeah. 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 Do you wear double? Do you double up now with your masks? I do since the inauguration when I noticed that all of the smart kids were wearing two masks. It was very yeah. clear that like, oh, that might be a good idea. Maybe they know something I don't. Yeah. Some of the smart people on Twitter were saying the, the doctors like um, Anthony Slavitt or Andy Slavitt and uh, some of the other people that I follow who are the COVID doctors are saying now it's a good time to start doubling up. So I'm doubling up. If they tell me I'll do it. Just smart. Yep. Well, yep. so I read the other day there was a 35% drop in new uh, co- uh COVID or coronavirus diagnoses, right? So 35% drop in new cases, and they were 
putting that down to, oh, we're this close to getting a vaccine and nobody wants to come down with COVID before they get vaccinated. So people are just being more careful now. I hope so. I don't know if it's true. I mean, I certainly would be pissed off if I got COVID right now, but um, I, I can't be any more careful than I am. So, yeah, at a, at a certain point, it's just you've done everything. I, mean, I have to go to the pharmacy until I get until I switch over to a different pharmacy and they mail it to me. Yeah. So, yeah, at a certain point. Yeah. You, you, you've done what you can do. So Bye. speaking of doing what you can do. Yeah. Let's take a look at today's talk. I love doing these segues. It's so exciting for me when I can make it work. Um, That's fun. So today we are looking at racism here's where I hand you the baton. And the APA. So let's talk about racism for a second. So of course, as we've said before on this uh, on the show, um, neither of us are qualified to talk about racism because we're both white people. So I will um, in this episode try to let other people who are qualified speak via reading their words. So um, from an article in thedorm.com, which appears to be something like betterhelp.com, it's except for kids in college. Um, there's the, the article is called Acknowledging a History of Systemic Racism in Mental Health Treatment, which is a good article and includes a lot of good resources, by the way, for white people and for people of color. Um, so a quote from the article, Black Americans' lived experience has been shaped by generations of formal institutional and systemic racism. As a result of these traumas, the current black mental health crisis that exists is complex, deep-set, and perpetuated by issues of socioeconomic inequity, limited access, mental health criminalization, as well as a history of misdiagnosis and poor treatment. So that gives you kind of an idea of very surface level idea of where um, people of color, um, what is it, BIPOC people are uh, with mental health. And I looked that up because I wasn't sure if it was BIPOC or if you were supposed to say BIPOC, but I looked it up and it's BIPOC. I did the same thing because <laughs> I didn't want to put my ignorance on full display for everybody. Yes. Yeah, any more than I already will, right? Yeah. So um, when you think about mental health, um, you, th you think about psychology and psychiatry, obviously. And there are two organizations with the same initials, the APA. One is the American Psychiatric Association and one is the American Psychological Association. So it gets very confusing, um, even if you're uh, in, in the field. So I, was, uh, I studied psychology um, I said counseling psychology as a, a master's degree student. I got a master's degree in counseling psychology, and I was a member of the American Psychiatric Association, I think as one of their like student members or whatever, however you, they did it when you were, it was, it was a long time ago. Um, and even then, like if you said APA, I'd, I wouldn't know if you're talking about the American Psychiatric Association or the American Psychological Association, but they're two very separate organizations. And the American Psychiatric Association is the one we're going to be talking about today. It was founded in 1844 in Philadelphia by 13 superintendents and organizers of insane asylums and hospitals. So um, not doctors, just people who ran the... Um, the madhouses, so to speak, uh, called itself the Association of Medical Superintendents of American Institutions for the Insane. And it was uh, founded to focus on the administration of hospitals and how that affected the care of patients, as opposed to conducting research or promoting the profession, which is more what the organization does today. Uh, it changed its name to the APA, American Psychiatric Association, in 1921, and has, since its founding, taken on conducting research and promoting the profession. So... 
current president of the APA is Jeffrey Geller, who looks like your generic white man with a big mustache. Um, became president in April of 2020 and began addressing structural racism with the aim of eradicating it. In June 2020, he formed the APA Presidential Task Force to address structural racism throughout psychiatry. And the goals of this uh, task force were to provide education and resources on psychiatry's history regarding structural racism, explain the current impact of structural racism on the mental health of patients and colleagues, and develop achievable recommendations for change to eliminate structural racism in APA and psychiatry now and in the future. So this work is meant to continue beyond Geller's presidency. One thing that always struck me as odd about the APA is that the presidency term is one year. So it it almost seems like you get in there, you figure out where the bathroom is, and then it's time to go. Uh, It's hard to make structural, long-lasting changes when you've only got a year to do it. So is he going to be successful? Um, We don't know. He's still got a couple months left in his term, so we'll see. Um, So besides in June 2020 forming the task force to address structural racism through psychiatry, uh, as Also, as part of this effort, in June 2020, the APA put out a statement condemning the murder of George Floyd. And um, I'm going to read parts of it, not all of it. Uh, it's, it's, it's well worth reading, so if you can find it um, online, it's easy to find, uh, hunt it out. Uh, but it says, the American Psychiatric Association and the National Medical Association stand together in expressing our condolences and heartfelt sympathy to the family of George Floyd. His murder was a senseless act of violence that we forcefully condemn. Systemic racism is evident in America, as seen by police violence against black Americans, including young children, Tamir Rice, those inside their own homes, Breonna Taylor, those shot in the back, Kareshard Brooks, as well as others involved in harmless acts, Eric Garner. Systemic racism is also apparent in the health disparities in black communities, as evidenced by their much higher mortality rates from COVID-19. We cannot and will not accept this. Um, We join the peaceful protest against racial injustice. We call for an end to all forms of discrimination. And then a bit farther down, it starts talking about, um, we call on our police officers to keep the peace without brutality. Law enforcement and our leaders must realize that militarized responses to peaceful civil disobedience begets distrust and acrimony. America needs effective leadership to understand, identify, and ameliorate racism in all forms throughout the United States, and it needs it right now. And then it goes on to call for several um, several points, uh, including uh, focusing police education on de-escalation techniques, uh, mandating access to and use of mental health crisis intervention teams for police departments, recognizing the trauma caused by racism, uh, a healthcare system where access to medical care is not dependent upon skin color, wealth, religion, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, or the neighborhood where one lives. In July 2020, the editors of the official journal of the APA, the American Journal of Psychiatry, wrote an editor's note called The American Journal of Psychiatry's Commitment to Combat Racism, Social Injustice, and Healthcare Inequities. They uh, said that, uh, as described by APA President Jeffrey Geller, uh, Americans, American psychiatry's early years were marked by engagement in blatant systemic racism, the consequences of which remain evident today. We note that in 1970, A series of papers was published in the journal that spoke to how psychiatry should address racism. Unfortunately, little progress has been made, and the journal's efforts fell short. 
uh, in addition to self-examining our own unintentional behaviors that may contribute to racism, the additional action steps that we are taking include the following. One, commitment to further enhance inclusiveness and diversity in the journal in relation to the editorial board, authorship, and reviewers. Prioritization of high-quality papers focused on the history of racism, systemic racism issues, healthcare inequities, mechanisms underlying in illness, and new treatment development that are relevant and specific to the mental health of Black individuals. Highlight publications and other initiatives that promote strategies to attract and train Black physicians to become clinical psychiatrists, educators, and researchers. And development of a special section of the journal website to update progress in these areas and to allow for the rapid posting of highly relevant, impactful new manuscripts. Oh, and the last one is to work in concert with the APA's Presidential Task Force to address structural racism throughout psychiatry in its charge to develop achievable and actionable recommendations for change to eliminate structural racism. So you start to see some actual actions being taken, um, not just some some statements being put out, which are, you know, maybe someone reads them, maybe they don't, um, but uh, points of action that various specific groups are tasked with taking on and um, specific things that the journal itself needs to do. So what we will be able to do over the next year or so is to um, follow along, so to speak, and see if these organizations actually do uh, make the changes that they are uh, promising to make. Yeah, so it, we could say that step one has been taken, which is acknowledging that there is a problem, right? And then step two, not so much trying to fix the problem or identify the problem, because uh, here, here I go, waving my hands around that nobody can see. Um, and... Then there's this measure for accountability because you don't hold a um, a review of your industry, right, without publishing mm -hmm. the findings and then right. um, opening up the door for discussion about this problem and sorting out how will we resolve it. So, again, yeah. I see that very much as a step one, admitting that there is a problem and identifying what that problem is. Is this like uh, AA? It's totally like one. AA. Um, <laughs> racism is racism a, is, is an addiction. addiction. It's to oh God. <laughs> well, I I have a lot of nonsense to bring to the conversation, perhaps a bit later. Um, but the, this topic did open up some interesting avenues of thought for me. Right. Cool. Um, yeah, cool. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see if it's cool or we'll see if it's ridiculous. We'll see if it's cool or we'll see if it's terrible. <laughs> I'm glad <laughs> you're so ready speak. to jump on board with cool. <laughs> we can never speak publicly again, perhaps. Um, so the reason that we are actually here in this episode discussing the APA at all is uh, in January 18th of this year, 2021, uh, the APA uh, made an apology to Black, Indigenous, and people of color for its support of structural racism in psychiatry. And I'm going to read the whole thing. It's not terribly long, but it's important. Um, today, the American Psychiatric Association, the oldest national physician association in the country, is taking an important step in addressing racism in psychiatry. The APA is beginning the process of making amends for both the direct and indirect acts of racism in psychiatry. 
the APA Board of Trustees apologizes to its members, patients, their families, and the public for enabling discriminatory and prejudicial actions within the APA and racist practices in psychiatric treatment for Black, Indigenous, and people of color, BIPOC. The APA is committed to identifying, understanding, and rectifying our past injustices, as well as developing anti-racist policies that promote equity in mental health for all. Early psychiatric practices laid the groundwork for the inequities in clinical treatment that have historically limited quality access to psychiatric care for BIPOC. These actions sadly connect with larger social issues, such as race-based discrimination and racial injustice that have furthered poverty along with other adverse outcomes. Since the APA's inception, practitioners have at times subjected persons of African descent and indigenous people who suffered from mental illness to abusive treatment, experimentation, victimization in the name of scientific evidence, along with racialized theories that attempted to confirm their deficit status. Similar race-based discrepancies in care also exist in medical practice today, as evidenced by the variations in schizophrenia diagnoses between white and BIPOC patients, for instance. These appalling past actions, as well as their harmful events, are ingrained in the structure of psychiatric practice and continue to harm BIPOC psychological well-being even today. Unfortunately, the APA has historically remained silent on these issues. As the leading American organization in psychiatric care, the APA recognizes that this inaction has contributed to perpetuation of structural racism that has adversely impacted not just its own BIPOC members, but also psychiatric patients across America. Events in 2020 have clearly highlighted the need for action by the APA to reverse the persistent tone of privilege built upon the inhumanity of past events, inequities in access to quality psychiatric care, research opportunities, education training, and representation in leadership can no longer be tolerated. The APA apologizes for our contributions to the structural racism in our nation and pledges to enact corresponding anti-racist practices. We commit to working together with members and patients in order to achieve the social equality, health equity, and fairness that all human beings deserve. We hope this apology will be a turning point as we strive to make the future of psychiatry more equitable for all. And then they've added an historical addendum. Uh, in this document, the APA hopes to elaborate on some past events that have contributed to structural racism's pervading presence today. When Eastern State Hospital, ESH, the first psychiatric care facility was founded in 1773, it was not segregated. Seventy years later, however, when the 13 founders of what is now the APA met to discuss improvements in medical health care delivery, mental health care delivery, the treatment system they created and the organization they founded aligned with that era's racist social and political policies. In this system, black patients received psychiatric care separately from white patients. A former ESH superintendent also implicated that payment for psychiatric care was accepted in the form of enslaved people, at least during the facility's founding. Additionally, prevailing black stereotypes in psychiatry included fallacies that patients were hostile, unmotivated for treatment, had primitive character structure, i.e. not psychologically minded, and were childlike. These misconceptions were perpetuated by a now-debunked diagnosis, drapetomania, centered around the idea that black Americans who did not want to be slaves were mentally ill. During that time, the APA chose to remain silent on these issues. At critical points in the United States socio-political evolution through the 19th and 20th centuries, the APA failed to act in black Americans' best interests. 
that this inactivity was notably evident while white supremacists lynched black people during the Reconstruction era, as well as when Jim Crow segregation was in effect, which led to separate but equal standards of care starting in 1896. Later, our APA failed to declare support for Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka in 1954, along with further major civil rights legislation designed to improve sociopolitical conditions for black people. In 1969, black APA members demanded that the organization address inequities and their resultant negative impact on minority mental health. In response, the APA created the Solomon Carter Fuller Award, named for the first recognized black psychiatrist in America, and added a non-voting seat for a black psychiatrist to the Board of Trustees. Unfortunately, these 1969 actions served more as a conciliation rather than a commitment to meaningful structural change by the APA. Psychiatric misdiagnoses among black, indigenous, and people of color populations throughout the decades that followed was also common. For example, late 20th century psychiatrists commonly attributed their minority patients' frustrations to schizophrenia, while categorizing similar behaviors in white patients as neuroticism. One study found that a sample of largely APA members diagnosed more black than white patients with schizophrenia, even when both had otherwise identical vignette-style clinical presentations. This reveals the basis for embedded discrimination within psychiatry that has contributed to reduced quality of care for BIPOC populations and perpetuation of dangerous stereotypes. The everyday use of microaggressions, which are subtle verbal and nonverbal put-downs directed towards BIPOC, further maintains structural racism today. The APA sincerely apologizes and strives to make psychiatry's future more equitable for all. So the thing that I really like about this Statement, apology, is it an apology? I mean, it's an apology, but bigger conversation around an institution apologizing for institutionalized racism. But uh, the one line for me that makes this work is, we hope this apology will be a turning point as we strive to make the future of psychiatry more equitable for all. So the apology is really just marking a moment in time that says, this here, now, this day is the day that we say there is institutionalized racism in psychology, and we need to address the fact that it exists. Mm -hmm. The apology doesn't ask for forgiveness. It doesn't, I mean, I mean, does an apology ever ask for forgiveness? Of course, right? But um, it, it's, I, I mean, okay, I'm, I'm falling apart here as I uh, try and explain this. Well, I think what and you're I'm saying is that it. this isn't try, the apology isn't trying to be, you know, here it is. We've said it. Now get we over it. We fixed it. The apology fixes it's, it. Right. right. We didn't fix it. There's there's more work that we have to do, and we're going to start laying out the specifics of what more work needs to be done. You may now hold us accountable for racism. We are working right. on it. Right. And when we come forward and say we have fixed it, then you can start holding us accountable for not having fixed it. Right, 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 right. Perhaps. I think. I think so. <laughs> I can't agree with what you said. <laughs> We're psychiatrists. If you try to hold us accountable, we will call you crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's what they used to do. 
Um, so unfortunately, uh, I guess um, these are not the first statements the APA has put out condemning racism, um, as the apology itself mentions and Ruth Shim mentions in her essay in stat.com called Structural Racism is Why I'm Leaving Organized Psychiatry. Um, a collection of seven articles on racism appeared in the American Journal of Psychiatry in 1970, uh, including clear recommendations for white psychiatrists to, quote, become increasingly aware of how their everyday practices continue to perpetuate institutional white racism in psychiatry and to support the search for realistic solutions and to make available the necessary resources of money, manpower, and authority, and not just in the current token amounts, unquote. Unfortunately, these recommendations were not followed in any significant way, despite the fact that they are still as relevant today as they were 50 years ago. Uh, what is needed now, according to Ruth Shim, is financial commitment coupled with accountability to implement action to begin to systematically dismantle structural racism in organized psychiatry. And uh, Dr. Shim further says, when Dr. Alpha Stewart became president of the APA in May 2018, the only black president in the organization's 176-year history, she appointed many psychiatrists of color to prominent leadership positions throughout the organization. Sadly, these gains did not persist once her one-year term ended, so recent public statements and town hall events about the APA's commitment to ending structural racism seem disingenuous. And... Geller himself, the current president, says, many will argue this apology should have come sooner. That said, the events of 2020, the killings of black people by police, the health inequities laid bare by the pandemic were an eye-opener for many among our membership and a clarion call that it was past time to take action. Uh, we have also Jonathan Reeves, who is J-O-N-W-L-R-E-E-V-E-S at John W.L. Reeves on Twitter. Um, says, there are few things more familiar to BIPOC than empty promises and words. As others have said, my love language is policy change. I like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I love that he used the phrase love language. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to totally use that forevermore. Honey, in my love <laughs> language, we don't ask me to wash the dishes. That's right. <laughs> you give my me love money. language is servitude. Um, yeah. Okay. So, so we have this organization of psychologists, mental health professionals. I'll, I'll use that one because psychologist is hard for me to say. Um, They're psychiatrists. Psychiatrists. See how hard it is for me yeah. to say? <laughs> um, so we have this organization that, help me with this because I know this is, this is really your bailiwick. I like using that word. Um, bailiwick. So, who your realm, your uh -huh. your area of expertise, right? Twenty your, years ago, your yeah. wheelhouse, uh -huh. um, your ham, your habit trail, my habit trail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so who who creates the DSM? I know it'll be the APA, but which the of the APA. two? Right. Oh, the American Psychiatric Association. Okay, terrific. And so. Um, I was curious when when this topic was uh, introduced, right? And how is it that people of color are discriminated against in in treatment, mm -hmm. right? So racism exists. It's it is uh, institutionalized. We are all racist on some level. Uh, people get a little. Uh, 
I don't want to say confused, but you get up in arms when, like, you know, if you say I'm a racist, everybody backs away from you. But, but I feel like we have to acknowledge that we are all racist because we Absolutely. were all raised within a racist culture. So, yes. so where, where this starts to fall down is in this idea of what is a racist, right? What is racism? And there's active and, and passive racism. Um, so for some people in my family who might say things that to me are very clearly racist and to them are not racist at all, and they're angry that I would even suggest that what they've just said is racist, right? Is for them, a racist is somebody who catch who's a murderer, Mm-hmm. Right. You were killing people because they are black. You were beating people up because they are black. If you're not doing mm-hmm. that, you're not racist. So if you don't hire somebody because they're a person of color and because they might steal from you, well, that's just reasonable. Right. Right. It's not racist. That's, that's not just racist facts, at all. That's right? just, yeah. Well, it's not even a fact that that person will. It's just that person's more likely to steal from you because they're a person of color. And uh-huh. you can sprinkle on a whole bunch of, and those people, and by those people, I mean, you know, people of color tend to be more impoverished and socially. So so they could come up with a bunch of really good sounding reasons for why a person of color might be more likely to steal from you, but they missed the whole point entirely, which is because they're a person of color, you're saying they're more likely to steal from you. You're not saying that mm-hmm. poor people are more likely to steal from you. Right. Right. So that's why I don't get invited to Thanksgiving anymore. Um, all right. So... So let's see, there's a lot to look at here, but so I just wanted to look at like, how are people harmed? I know that they are, but, but how, right? What does this mean? And so, um, black patients with severe mental illness experience health disparities when compared to white patients. These disparities include differences in the availability of culturally appropriate, affordable care, a disproportionate diagnosis of psychotic illnesses, differential and inequitable access to certain medications and treatments, and a decreased likelihood of being referred to higher quality evidence-based aftercare programming. These disparities are not due to black people being sicker, but instead are due to implicit bias and structural racism. All right, cool. So what exactly does that mean? That means that when in a hospital setting, kind of make up a scenario here, you might have a uh, a person of color who is having a mental health crisis might be mm-hmm. in crisis in the moment, right? Mm-hmm. And the white social worker walks into the room and sits down with that person and deems that person perfectly fine, uh, not mentally ill, but stressed. rather, you know, oh, you're uh, you're from a very poor area of town, and so the stress that you're feeling is related to finances, et cetera. So the thing in this that this topic that really intrigued me was how is it that black people are hurt by psychiatry? Um, and I would like to read from an abstract that I pulled uh, when I searched racism in psychology. Uh, this will be... Uh, referenced in our uh, our sources in the show notes. Uh, so 
Black patients with severe mental illness experience health disparities when compared to white people. These disparities include differences in the availability of culturally appropriate affordable care, a disproportionate diagnosis of psychotic illnesses, differential and inequitable access to certain medications and treatments, and a decreased likelihood of being referred to higher quality, evidence-based aftercare programming. These disparities are not due to black people being sicker, but instead are due to implicit bias and structural racism. Uh, so within the field of psychology and psychiatry within the United States, uh, less than 1% of psychiatrists are black and approximately wow. 4% of um, psychologists are black. Um, in addition, disparities in diagnosis, blacks are more likely to receive an SMI or severe mental illness diagnosis than their white counterparts. And access to care, as well as a lack of access to culturally competent care, often result in SMI going untreated. Um, so psychiatry, psychology is old, the roots of it in this country um, as an as a institution, as an industry, are also rather old. Um, the first mental hospital opened in 1773 in Virginia. Uh, it was a public mental institution, and it admitted one free African-American a year until the end of a civil war. Uh, it was called Eastern. A cistern, a cistern no, a sister facility uh, called Western opened in 1825, and that remained racially segregated until 1967. Uh, that's mm. not a typo. Uh, it was uh, mm. 142 years. The idea of such a hospital was proposed and sanctioned by an APA commissioned uh, chair in the uh, 1800s pre-Civil War by two guys named Galt and Striebling. Um, let's see. And Galt, who was one of the co-founders, um, believed that integrated psychiatric treatment could take place if African-Americans had a history of freedom. Um, but because they were enslaved, they had a different mental life than non-enslaved people. So the, the fact that they were enslaved meant that uh, they could not be treated, mentally treated, uh, the same as whites. Uh, let's see here. So in 1870... The Central Lunatic Asylum for Colored Insane was opened. Uh, mm -hmm. It later changed its name to a much nicer sounding Central State Hospital in 1894. Mm -hmm. um, let's see. And the opening of the Central Lunatic Asylum for Colored Insane People in 1870. Uh, let's see here culminated in a decades-long series of military, legislative, and medical debates, negotiations, and data analysis that inflated the impact of freedom on African Americans in terms of insanity, violence, and crime. So sort of there was this idea kicking around that taking enslaved people and making them free might make them crazy. <laughs> they wouldn't be able to 
deal with being free. They just didn't have the emotional and intellectual capacity to deal with freedom. That's horrifying. Uh, I mean, on one hand, I'm going to say it shows you how far we've come. But the reason I, I call this out is this grain, this idea, still present in the culture, right? It's the... It's the thing that allowed white people to enslave black people. Oh, they can't take care of themselves. Oh, they're so innocent and childlike. And the ones that are constantly running away from my care must be insane. Hence that diagnosis of uh, dreptomania, which was coughed up by a Southern physician, surprise, surprise, named Samuel um, Cartwright, um, he described the order, which he said was unknown to our medical authorities, although its diagnostic symptom, the absconding from service, is well known to our planters and overseers. Mm. Um, he stated that the malady was a consequence of masters who made themselves too familiar with slaves, treating them as equals. Um, here we begin a quote, and you'll know it's a quote because the sentence structure is just all over the place. This is how they like to talk or orate in the 1800s. Um, if treated kindly, well-fed and clothed, with fuel enough to keep a small fire burning all night, separated into families, each family having its own house, not permitted to run about at night to visit their neighbors, to receive visits or use intoxicating liquors, and not overwork or exposed to too much weather, they are very easily governed, more so than any other people in the world. If any one or more of them at any time are inclined to raise their heads to a level with the master or overseer, Humanity and their own good requires they should be punished until they fall into that submissive state that which was intended for them to occupy. They have only to be kept in that state and treated like children to prevent and cure them from running away. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so here starts the uh, how how did white people sleep at night? They slept right. at night by believing this. Right. Um, now, this idea of dreptomania, the idea of enslaved people running away, um, took some root in the South because, again, that was just another box they could tick to say, we're doing everything great. Um, in the North, this idea, this diagnosis of dreptomania was ridiculed. Um, and there was a uh, basically a cartoon that appeared in the Buffalo Medical Journal in 1855, which uh, which I don't have a copy of it, uh, showed that, well, you know, indentured servants in the 16 and 1700s from Europe actually also ran away from their masters. So dreptomania must have been an European import to Africa. Um, hmm. So... So I found that interesting, right? Um, And then try to avoid a bunch of rabbit holes because when you start looking at race and slavery, it's just, it's a field. It's a landmine. It's a field of landmines and rabbit holes. It is just dangerous. And And potentially a massive time sucker because I could spend four hours looking at what do racist women wear on Sunday to church? Right. And get nothing done. Right. Um, 
Yeah. So, you know, not good, but very little out of the 1800s would feel good to contemporary culture. Um, You know, this is a this is a problem that uh, not limited to psychiatry. So Mm -hmm. in the medical profession, uh, it's there's a there's a well-known quote that what the police are to black men doctors are to women of color yeah yeah and so i was going to mention that because i was reading i've been reading lately that um and i didn't realize this but but that that doctors do many doctors do believe that black people feel less pain than white people and i was astonished when i heard that i mean where do people get these ideas i guess other doctors well, they get it from uh, from society. They get it from uh, things that they've heard in lecture. Uh, and maybe no one's ever specifically said to them, black people feel less pain. But mm-hmm. uh, it's just an idea that, that gets picked up. Um, I did not look at that idea. Like, why, did, mm-hmm. why would a doctor think that? Right? Is there something about um, you have collagen in your skin? That's what gives it its stretch and its elasticity. Um, so, it's, you know, do people of color have more collagen in their skin, which would give them a layer of protection from nerve? But no, of course not. That's stupid, right? Of course, it's not a thing. Um, mm-hmm. People just believe just believe that they make these mental leaps from point A to point Z in terms of um, race. So let's see. Uh, researchers examined data on hospital births in Florida from 1992 to 2015, and they found that when attended by white physicians, black newborns experience 430 more deaths per 100,000 births than white newborns. When attended wow. by a black physician, those uh, excess dropped to 173 deaths for black infants out of 100,000. So that difference from a white doctor treating, you know, a baby and a black doctor treating a baby, that's greater than a 50% um, upswing. I don't know what word to use, right? I don't want to say Mm -hmm. improvement, but Mm -hmm. improvement. Um, And so clearly something's going on there. Yeah, um, definitely. And and that something is probably racism. Um, I do not know if that was a study that was done at just one specific hospital. I didn't look up the study. I don't know what what all the criteria were, et cetera, et cetera. So um, there's certainly something alarming there, yeah. right? Because, um, yeah, I... Uh, who's not alarmed by a massive increase and in, yeah it would be interesting yeah. to see what the study authors took as the conclusion to that study and uh maybe we'll look that up at some point and see but um i wonder if they drew the same conclusion that i'm sure they did draw that same conclusion that it was racism it would be interesting to see that in in paper in black and white yeah i mean Whatever. well ha no puns intended i was just gonna say things are worse than we thought uh, with the situation for people of uh, color 
things are way black, more worse black than we and thought. Of color. They were worse than we thought. Um, we didn't know that they were that bad. It was our fault. We didn't know they were that bad, and we should really uh, try to do something about it. Now that's and it's, that comes to what do you do about it? Well, the um, actual uh, website that the uh, APA has set up has some has some links and stuff for you to look at. But um, we'll get there. We'll get. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, so should we talk about the um, should we talk about the apology itself? Sure. Let's do that because that is the point okay. of our show. So when I was talking to Brent, the producer, um, last night about the um, about this issue, um, he brought up that when an individual apologizes for their individual actions, it's very different than when an institution apologizes for its historical actions. So he was saying if he had made a racist comment, realized his error and apologized, he could make changes in his attitudes and behavior, and hopefully that would be the end of it. He would improve and he could move on. But when an institution apologizes, they need to undertake serious restitution, like a multi-year plan, because the damage done is so much greater. So the question then is to say, has the APA made these systemic changes? Um, And I know that the apology was only made in January of this year, so... um, I don't know that we can say right now, um, but if we look back to when Jeffrey Geller became president of the APA in April of 2020, um, we can look at uh, a November 2020 report by the task force, which showed activities that they had taken, which included, this makes me laugh, creating a website. <laughs> it's a cure to everything, really. Always does. Create a website. Make a website. <laughs> Creating a website with recommended readings, which is valuable, um, held two educational town halls, um, had three mini surveys that identified a common theme of addressing structural racism within the APA itself, uh, and three task force work groups were formed to do that. Um, an assembly area one council recommended changes at council meetings to address racism. Um, And the APA Council on Children, Adolescents, and Their Families is developing a resource document called How Psychiatrists Can Talk with Patients and Their Families About Race and Racism. So some solid actions are being taken, uh, whether those will continue or um, those will be impactful is, I think, yet to be seen. Right. Um, I was curious about Jeller because what was it about him that mm-hmm. I get the time, right? 2020, we have Black Lives Matter. We have, we're at the dawning of a new, um, I don't know, civil rights renaissance and more work to be done. The acknowledgement of more, more work, work to be, be done. done. Yeah. Um, and so, so, you know, why under his watch? Why is he yeah. doing What's this? What's his deal? So yeah. um, I found out. It took me a while because uh, he, like, the internet's pretty scrubbed for for him. Um, really? But I, well, I say scrubbed. I'll just say that um, he's not a, a highly educated money. person who probably is too yeah. smart to put a lot of dumb things out on the internet, <laughs> unlike me. So, um, but I did find an interview with him where he, uh, where he uh, said, hey, here's some stuff you don't know about me. So he was born in New York City in Manhattan. He's a fifth-generation New Yorker, and his first room at home was a walk-in closet in a one-bedroom apartment. He's a Mm. product of the New York State public school system, grades kindergarten through 12, 
Virtually everyone in his large extended family was in the women's shoe business. He became Mm. the first position in his extended family having no interest in shoes. Um, (laughs) That's him. That's not me, but that is funny. Um, His parents were social activists, and he was exposed to uh, this perspective his entire life. Um, And now quoting him, for example, my parents addressed the fact that I was in a school system with virtually no minorities by sending me to an all-black after-school program in the next town, I was the only white kid, took me on civil rights marches from the earliest years of the movement, encouraged me to work in the Olympic uh, National Park in Washington State when I was only 16 years old to make my way back across the country on my own. Here's where I'm going to... Well, sorry. And uh, they went with him to hear uh, speakers like Martin Luther King, Bayard Rustin, and Robert Kennedy in small local venues. But here's where I'm just going to take a step back and say, your parents dropped you off at a national park when you were 16 and then told you to work mm-hmm. to make your way back home? Wow. Wow. Yeah, they used to do things like that then. Uh, I would have hitchhiked and I would have been murdered. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't have murder back then. Oh, you're right. Uh, so <laughs> he's the oldest of three boys. His mother is a retired social worker. Um, his oldest, let's see here. Uh, I lied. I lied. His wife is a retired social worker, uh, and they are the parents of three boys. The oldest has developmental disabilities and works at Brigham's and Women's Hospital. Uh, mm. The middle one lives in Brooklyn and commutes by bicycle because he's a hipster. That's me, not him saying that. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's see. And then his youngest son is an intensive intensivist cardiologist uh-huh. who lives in Portland. Um, wow. So this is a guy who's wired for empathy, but yeah. also I'm loving that his parents were so influential in introducing him to the concept of racism. So that sort of answered for me, why under his watch? Why is this happening now? Outside of the fact that like, it's politically expedient to address racism right now. Right, right, right. Yeah, I I didn't get the feeling from any of this that he was doing it because it was politically expedient. No, it it feels very genuine. uh, genuine. Yeah. Yeah. Which... Which leads to some hope that these, although he's only in office for one year, that these, this viewpoint, this steering the ship in a slightly different direction is something that will continue. Yeah. I'm never sure when you have. So, like, I'm a feminist, obviously, and me being a feminist is like, yeah, whatever, because I'm a woman, and it just kind of hits me where I live. So, sure, I'm going to be a feminist because I'm trying to make my own life better, right? No, there's plenty of women who aren't feminist. Well, but if I were to go out and become an activist for people of color, for example, then then do you either look on that with suspicion? Because why are you going and butting your nose into people's business that doesn't concern you? Mm-hmm. Or do you think of, think about that even as even more um, laudable or whatever because you're doing something for other people that doesn't uh, impact you positively? I, I, I know the, uh, the church would say, well, the church, the church would 
theoretically say I'm that sorry, it is when you say the church, do you mean the Catholic Church <laughs> or do you mean the Seventh Day Adventist Church or <laughs> the Catholic Church, of course, because that's what we were raised in. It's the only church there is. It's the only it is church the universal there is. Church. I knew instantly what you were talking about when you said the church. But I, I figured for our heathen listeners, we better explain <laughs> that there's only one church and it's the Catholic Church. Our pagan yeah. listeners. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, do do you do you think that do you think that he's better for doing this, a better person for doing something, or do you think that he's suspicious? And and I wonder if people of color would think that he's suspicious for being a white guy getting all involved. Because when a man comes to a feminist meeting, we're all like, "What are you doing here?" And it's not necessarily a good thing. You have to prove yourself as to you know being in the right place or the, being there for the right reason, rather than just to prove to a bunch of women that you're cool. Or something like that. That you're trying to date, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I get that in that when, when I'm in a gay, well, I don't do the the gay politics stuff anymore. Um, mm-hmm. Who cares? Well, God, who cares? I care deeply and passionately. <laughs> you better believe that. <laughs> I got what I wanted. I got my man. <laughs> Fuck all you bitches. <laughs> You're on your own now. Um, no. So do I look weird? Did I look weirdly upon straight allies? No, I was always really glad to see them there. Um, That's good. And it always made sense to me why they would want to to be there, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Because... Uh, how a society treats its least tells you very much about that society's core values. And Sadly, so, yes. yeah. So, uh, so I got that, like by well, them good. being there to try and make my life better, they in yeah. turn amplified their own. Well, that's true. But most people don't see that, but that's very true. Yeah. Yeah. I guess maybe I'm just suspicious. Well, but it's, it's different. I mean, Women and gays are very different, right? Did <laughs> well, anyone tell you we're I mean, different things? Yeah, yeah. Women I mean, women I are understand. under under threat uh, by men, and so are gays. Well, I mean, yes, and yeah, I mean, yes, it's but, different. but yes it's different. and no. It's it, it's yeah. It, yeah, it's it's very different, right? Yeah. Um, I remember once I was at, can't wait. I'm so excited to get to tell you this story. Um, when I worked at Disney, I went to the mall for lunch. It was a rare Mm -hmm. treat. And Mm -hmm. I went with my boss, Kim, and I pulled into the parking lot and I zipped into this really great space right between two vans, two of those camper 1970s style camper vans. Right. And we got out and Kim said, wow, I could never do that. And I was like, Oh, you mean park so masterfully <laughs> because it was a good parking job. And yeah. she said, no, I would never park between two vans. And I was like, Why? what the fuck are you talking about, Kim? Well, okay. You didn't get the memo that was sent to all women. So men wait inside the vans for a lone woman to pull in and then oh jump out and catch her. Right. Oh my God! Now, do I? I mean, do I believe that? Yes and no, right? But do mm-hmm. I believe that that's the world that uh, Kim lived in? Yes. So sure. the, the truth there is that 
even the most casual act of pulling into a parking lot is different for a man oh, yeah. by himself yeah, yeah. than a woman for by sure. herself. For sure. You probably didn't yeah, know like that because you're a woman wanna... and you needed me yeah. to tell you. <laughs> it's good that you acknowledge that, though. Yeah. So, so how does that relate to racism? Well, it was a story about me. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're saying that people, people can relate to, to racism even if it doesn't affect them in their own daily life, even if they happen to be white. So. Well, I mean, I'm going to say yes. Like, I yeah. certainly do, right, uh, myself. Um, yeah. I remember the first time that here's where I'm like, should I tell this story? Oh, God. The first time I realized I was racist, I was probably like 20 years old. And really? it, yeah, I mean, I just... I didn't realize it beforehand. I knew what a racist was having gone to a school, a high school in North Carolina that was, mm -hmm. um, I mean, it was integrated, of course. Uh, mm -hmm. But yeah, there was, there was a lot of racism in our school. They just sort of like fish and water didn't see, didn't pay yeah. attention to. Right. Right. There were, there were two different schools in one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so fine. Uh, because I always thought, well, I'm not racist. I right. I don't hate black people for being black. Right. There you go. I'm not. I'm not a racist. And I was at this party, and there was a guy there, and he just graduated from Harvard Law, and he was black. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And I said to myself in my head, Oh, mm -hmm. good for you! You're an attorney. You got into Harvard. Oh my God, the hardship you must have had to overcome. Again, that's something I said in my head, right? I was just like, oh, that's, right. that's great. How cool, right? Um, but inside, I, I am offering him congratulations and balloons and flowers for having overcome so much hardship. And what the fuck do I know? He could have been a Harvard legacy, right? His yeah. granddad could yeah. have gone to Harvard for all I know. But because he was black, it just went straight to you had to fight for what you got. You poor per poor. Poor person. You, yeah, poor, right. you poor black person. Oh, my gosh. How wonderful that you've achieved this. Right. And yeah. that's when it, and when I when I had that little talking to with myself, which was at the same party, because I just remember standing there thinking, Jesus, why do you think that? Mm -hmm. Right. That's when I realized, like, oh, you think that because he's black. And, you know, that probably mm -hmm. means you're racist. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, I'm not racist, so I never had that moment. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, you know, I have it every day in some way or, or another. And, you know, I, I make assumptions about people. I find myself making assumptions about people that I know aren't true or that don't even make sense. And, you know, you catch yourself and try to move on. But You've got to monitor. Well, you really have to monitor yourself because you're quite racist. Yeah. I mean, the things that you I say know. to me. Oh, no, but... um. Yeah, I think that's something that we all have to do. But then it gets into this, how do I separate being racist from being judgmental? Because I'm super judgy and you could show me two yeah. white people and I will tell you, and I know nothing about them. Right. I can tell you what I think they had for dinner the night before. I can tell you if I think uh -huh. they're nice or mean. I can tell you if I think the rooms are clean or not. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and am I right all the time? A hundred percent. <laughs> I'm always right. 
Um, but I guess it, it, to make the difference is what you judge them about. Like, do you judge a black person because their shoes are green, or do you judge them, you know, for some obvious because of the way their hair looks, or, or do you that, congratulate really them because they have enough money to buy shoes? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm uncomfortable now. <laughs> um, yes, uh, yes, it's bad. Um, not so much that statement because that was pure comedy. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, when we start looking at ourselves and what is it that we do that's racist or how do we contribute to the problem, um, it, at first it's okay because it's like, oh, yeah, all right, I do this thing, I do that thing. But then the more you start to think about it, the more it becomes uncomfortable. Uh, yeah. So, so much of racism is ingrained in us sure but not yes, really that's not sure. grammatically where i want to be with that but yeah we're just um we are just all racist unfortunately and we need to uh police ourselves for it on an individual level and i guess this gets us back to our point right which the original question before i dragged us down this road was can an institution apologize or how is an institutional apology different from an individual apology right and that leads us to to uh, the end. The, the thing that we do every week that I always forget the name of: accept or deny, um, oh. absolve or condemn. Uh, oh my goodness! Um, so we need to absolve or condemn this particular um, apology on the behalf of the APA or uh, by the APA. So, are you prepared? I am prepared. I am totally prepared for this. Okay. All right. At, at, um, at one, we'll condemn or absolve. Three, two, two one. one. Absolve. Absolve with conditions. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. This, this week so, we're, we're on the same page. Yeah. 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 I think that we need to make sure that the APA, we need to make sure that the APA um, does what it says it's going to do. It doesn't make it just... Um, lip service and actually carries out all of the great um, things that they've said they'll do. Yeah. Uh, I think that the apology was um, fair and it's a start, right? And the thing that I liked about it was not, we acknowledge that we've done wrong and therefore everything's fine. Let's right. move on. But more, right. Hey, we're going to carry this wrong with us while we work on yeah. making things right. So it's an Agreed. acknowledgement. It's the alcoholic putting the beer bottle down and saying, maybe I shouldn't anymore. Um, yeah. Yeah. And now I want beer. Yeah. Yeah. I feel kind of bad saying I would absolve, even with conditions, an organization for systemic racism, because it's not my place, obviously, to do it. And also, how can you do that? So um, it's more of a, I'm accepting your apology with conditions. Well, I mean, sure. Absolutely. Right. Again, we're we're white people who want to be allies, but we've never right. experienced racism yeah. And we have no idea what uh uh what it's like. No. And 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 we know that. We're just not even gonna pretend that that we do. There's nothing in my experience that as a gay person 
uh, sure, I'm a member of a marginalized community. I can be invisible. I, I can walk into a room and nobody knows that I'm gay right off the bat, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, right. And that's not the same thing that a person of color can do. Um, I did very briefly look at the flip side of this issue. So we have psychiatry having uh, deemed people of color um, as other or treated them as other for mm-hmm. for a long while and apologizing for that. Like we should, mm-hmm. you know, we were doing it. We didn't realize or we did realize, but whatever. Um, now we're going to do better. So doing better is racism a mental illness? Is extreme racism a mental illness? And I found something that I thought was um, a rather interesting point. So Hmm. uh, the APA has never officially recognized extreme racism as opposed to ordinary prejudice as a mental health problem. Um, Although, and you mentioned this, the issue was raised more than uh, 30 years ago during the civil rights era in 1969, uh, Harvard uh, psychiatrist Alvin, um, I will mispronounce his last name, I believe it is Poussaint, uh, and a group of black psychiatrists sought to have extreme bigotry classified as a mental disorder. Um, the association officials rejected the recommendation, arguing that because so many Americans are racist, even extreme racism in this country is normative, a cultural problem rather than an indication of a psychopathology. Uh, mm. Yeah, so... Mm. Essentially, the APA's rejection argued that mental illness must deviate from normal behavior. Uh, and then they Today, cited yeah. research showing that prejudicial attitudes were common among white Americans. Uh, and the APA, in effect, argued that racism was normal and not a fringe set of beliefs. Wow. Um, yeah. So cool that. And then uh, the other bit that I tripped over was um, there may be a biological uh, component to racism? Maybe. And so, I know, now let's get nervous because that sounds bad, (laughs) right? Like, oh my God, here comes the eugenics, get ready. Right, right, right. No. So so there's a beta beta blocker called um, propanol, propanolol. Propanolol. Propanol. Propanol. Yeah, that one. That one. I don't have to say it. That's fine. I'll never need a beta blocker. Um, I vaguely remember what they are. Uh, Okay, so it's a beta blocker used to treat um, heart disease, and it blocks the activation of the peripheral autonomic nervous system in the area of the brain uh, implicated in fear or emotional responses. Uh, So what uh, what happened in the UK, they gave 36 individuals um, propanolol, and uh, they noticed a 30% decrease in implicit racial bias hmm. in, the, uh, in the group. So, so that implies that racism is based in fear. Racism is based in fear. Yes. And so um, is it a cure for racism? No, it is not. Um, 
but racism is based in fear. According to this study, and I don't know what year it was done. It was, I mean, it was done in this, in the 21st century. So it was done sometime in the past 20 years. Um, I think it's even more recent than that. Uh, I'm going to say about 2015, but don't hold me to that. Um, and I thought, oh, okay, that's interesting. Doesn't necessarily explain anything, but um, interesting. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, so extreme racism is not a mental health issue. Uh, and being a person of color may set you up for harm within the mental health field, industry. What industry, words am I looking for? Sure. Um, Industry's good. And, uh, you know, it's always hard to identify an advocate uh, but when you are seeking medical help, uh, if you were a person of color and you stayed with us this long into the episode and you did switch it off and scream, <laughs> um, you know, uh, you know better than we do how to ask for an advocate. So do you have any um, apologies that you'd like to make this week? Yeah, this episode. <laughs> <laughs> I thought this episode was pretty well done. It's a it's a uh, pothole, it's pothole laden or whatever. Yes, I'm totally. To uh, landmine, so, landmine, landmine, landmine striven. How's that? <laughs> Strewn. Striven. Yeah. Why not? Um, <laughs> striven. Yeah, it was a tough one. It was a tough one to research. It was a tough one to do. It was a tough one to think about. Um, probably a tough one to listen to. Well, and it's it's uh, it's tough not only because it's racism, but because it's dealing with institutionalized racism. So, yeah. uh, to Brent's point, it's a lot easier to—I'll uh, use the word—diagnose uh, an individual's apology. So, if this mm -hmm. had been one physician or one psychiatrist who realized, "Oh my gosh, I've been mistreating all my my patients of color." X, Y, or Z because of this, you know, implicit bias that I have. Easier, not easier to to deal with. Um, this, as you say, is just something we'll have to revisit and at a future point to see if they've lived up yeah. to their word. Yeah, I think we should come back in a year and see what's happened with the APA if they're focusing on some other crazy thing at that point, like uh, stock stock shorting or something. The stock COVID uh, zombie illness that yeah. will, yeah. That vaccine's going to turn everybody into a zombie. Yeah. Well, I don't have any apologies to make this week. I've been very good. Uh, <laughs> Are you owed one? Um, yes, but I can't talk about it because it's work-related. So oh, cool. Okay, great. what it is. Yeah, I have an apology that's owed to me, but I can't talk about it because it's uh, the Pope owes it to me. Uh, oh. Yeah. He has a lot of apologies to you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, a lot more mm, than not yes no yes 2000 <laughs> years of apology do. church um, yeah you know for a while there we weren't on spotify and i was trying to get us on to spotify and yeah. i would go into spotify and test and type in apologies accepted and there's only like uh -huh. five or six podcasts that pull up and uh -huh. ours was not one of them which was the problem Weird. and my other problem was there's a podcast that's called 
um, how 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 Catholicism is true. <laughs> what? Or something like that. Yeah. So you know, like the apologist in, in uh, like a religious um, way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there's a couple of uh, Catholic yeah. podcasts out there that that That's pop funny. up, and one of them was like, <laughs> "Why Catholicism is true," or "How Catholicism is true." And it was like short podcast. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> this is the most we've ever spoken about catholicism in one episode and or ever in our lives probably probably because we already already know so um, we don't have to talk about it yeah so no i i actually don't have an apology this week either i will not make that mistake next week but i do have something to uh, close us out with all right. So I have a quote from Audre Lorde, who is... Oh, a, yay. Oh, good. Cool. Yeah. So she's an African-American uh, uh, writer, was. Yep. Uh, she's passed yep. away. Uh, she was also queer. And um, I thought this quote was very um, intriguing. And, mm-hmm. and I'll leave us here. So in regards to white people cleaning up uh, racism. Um, for the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. They may allow us to temporarily beat him at his own game, but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change. Racism and homophobia are real conditions of all of our lives in this place and time. I urge each one of us here to reach down into that deep place of knowledge inside herself and touch that terror or loathing of sorry, it touched that terror and loathing of any difference that lives here. See whose face it wears. Then the personal as the political can begin to illuminate all our choices. Um, I just love that line of the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house because yeah, why would, why would anybody change a system that was working for them? That's a good point. I've never really understood that statement. I hear it all the time, and it's like, I. What else are you going to dismantle the house with? You know, something other than the master's own tools. Why well, they work fine? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, this is between you and Miss Lord. Lord. Yeah, I'm gonna. I mean, I'm sure there's a deeper meaning to this that I'm just not getting, and obviously there is because it's such a popular quote. But um, I, th- I think what it means is more along the lines of, um, let's say, how do I put this? Um, the tools of oppression can't be used to dismantle oppression. Right. Something like yeah. that. Sure. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The tools of oppression cannot be used to dismantle the tools of oppression. Right. Um, so. And so that's there where we we're going to leave you, everybody. We took you to... Yeah. Uh, um, it's been an exciting ride today. It's Thank been you for listening. A very, uh, fr- yeah, I'm still like, don't say the wrong word. <laughs> I have my head in my hands now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Goodbye, everybody. Thank goodbye, you for joining everybody. us. Thanks. We'll be back next week.
you for listening to Apologies Accepted, the podcast. You can find links to the articles and the sources in the show notes. To submit an apology or find out more, visit us at apologiesaccepted.net, where you can also find our merchandise. We're on Twitter at Apologies Accepted. And on Instagram at apologies.accepted. You can support our important work at Patreon forward slash Apologies Accepted. And fuck Facebook. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>